Welcome to Creative Distillation, where we distill entrepreneurial research into actionable insights. My name is Jeff York. I'm the research director for the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship at the Leeds School of Business here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado at the University of Colorado. And I'm here once again with my co-host, Brad Warner, and I'm the faculty director for entrepreneurship at the Leeds School of Business also, Jeff, but I'm really excited about our podcast today. Uh, we have two amazing founders, local founders, well, local and not so local, uh, that we'll talk about in a minute, and then I think that uh, presenting a really, really cool paper that will be of great interest to our audience about, in a sense, uh, dissecting new business models and talking about innovation in new business models. And hopefully, we can shed some light, taking it from that academic tower that we talk about all the time down to the streets to see if we can help some folks. Yeah, taking it to the streets, like <laughs> Michael McDonald said, right? Well, Brad, you know, uh, is that Michael McDonald? It is. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Guy with a face for radio. I know my yacht rock. Uh, so, um, this is by far our most ambitious podcast ever. We decided just to skip past having a guest and have three that's right uh, because you know why not and you know we've done very little to prepare but still here we are and uh really excited today's topic and the topic of today's paper and what we were going to talk to our, our guest entrepreneurs about today was business model innovation and business models like you know what the heck is a business model anyway brad in your in your sense what well, do you think well actually before we even get to business oh, okay, models sorry. i think to talk about business models if we can combine alcohol chocolate and cbd <laughs> we're going to be in a much better spot in our life for the understanding. <laughs> well, 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 maybe we'll be in a better spot in our life. I'm not sure. Uh, our, so our, true. I'm not sure our clarity of explanation will be that enhanced, but we'll see. Right. We'll see what happens. So, so uh, back, but back to your initial question uh, for founders and early founders, establishing and landing on the proper business model is yeah. a really difficult challenge. Absolutely. And I, and I think it's an evolving challenge. And I normally talk to people that I'm helping and even in my business, the very, very early stages of a new startup, you are, in assumption, searching for a business model. Mm -hmm. So I think to have Yula here to actually talk us through some of these techniques and findings that she's found through her research yes. may provide some clarity and also some structure in identifying which model is appropriate, right? I mean, every business needs to make money at some point in the business. And we have two entrepreneurs here that can actually speak to that as well. Yeah. But bringing on the money is awfully tough. Um, and sure. sticking to models sometimes is very tough as well because there is this traction that has to happen. Right. As so, well as knowing when you need to change your business model and innovate. I mean, we see right. this, uh, I, gosh, I mean, how many students? You, you probably teach twice as many students as I do in a given year. But, but right now, I think I have about 150 students and uh, I see their opening salvos and their opening teams and their business model assumptions and, and trying to convince people that they need to change what they're doing uh, is often very difficult. And so I think, uh, I think today... Uh, I really enjoyed uh, reading the paper we're going to talk about today, which is forthcoming in the Academy of Management Journal, uh, which, so you know, Brad, is, is one of our premier journals in it academia. Is. And I'm really looking forward to talking about it. But before we do that, let's have our, our tasting of elements and, and introduce our, our guest entrepreneurs for this podcast right. this week as well. So first up, uh, we have Michael Keynes, who is a, the founder and lead chocolate maker. Of, and what's the name of your company again, Michael? I'm sorry. Uh, so um, our main company is called Moksha. Chocolate, moksha, uh, Sanskrit word meaning uh, freedom from samsara. But our overall project is called Chanel Cacao, which is our 501c3, which is based around the town of Chanel in, in Peru in the Amazon basin. Wow, fascinating. So speaking of interesting business models, that is uh, that is not what I expected you to say. So, <laughs> so that's really, we definitely want to delve into that some more. Uh, and then we also have another entrepreneur here this day who's been kind enough to host us, uh, Seth Johnson is the uh, founder distiller. He told me to introduce him this way, the founder distiller and head janitor of JNL Distilling. So welcome, Seth. We're really pleased. Thanks to have for having me. Yeah. Boy, well, I, I didn't us. know what I was getting into here. You're reading in a lot that we actually, I don't know, Michael, did you spend a lot of time thinking about your business model when you were organizing yeah, your company? Yeah, sort of more doing, but uh, I yeah. suppose it's an evolving process. You know? Yeah, I don't think so, I really thought a whole lot about what business model it would end up being. Really? So, like, you didn't, when you started off, you were just, what, what, what were you thinking when you started off? How did you get into the distilling business? I had, I'm no longer married, but I had a, a wife who made more money than God, so I no longer <laughs> needed to work for a paycheck like I had the rest of my life. Awesome. 
So yeah, that's kind of what allowed me to so it's explore the freedom this. to just say, hey, I want to do something that I'm passionate about and interested in. Yeah, and this is where. And you started here in Boulder, right? You've been yeah. here for eight years. Yeah, in the same location since 2011. Fantastic. An interesting fact about Seth is that he's a physicist turned distiller, and yeah. I love that. And and talking before we started recording today, this was kind of a passion for Seth and his life to understand the, the process of distilling and all that. And I love the fact that you've taken something that you've really loved and was near and dear to you and have turned it into this business. And um, I think it's evidenced by the success of your products too. Yeah. Um, that, that type of passion has resonated through everything that you've done. So congratulations there. Right. Well, that, and, that's uh, something that oh, every sorry. entrepreneur has is they have that authenticity. Mm. And I think identifying that and leveraging that to the fullest extent is... It took me a while to figure that out, actually, but hmm. that's your silver bullet that the big boys can't do. That's right. Oh. Especially when you make something that you and, and other people put in their mouth, <laughs> you know, whether right. it be a spirit or, or chocolate, you know, that, that passion for, for that thing is, is something you created, you know, from scratch with your own hands. So right. that's what makes it so meaningful. But right. bringing it to, to a business, mm. bringing it to a market, and, you know, that's a much harder thing that... Uh, we we could probably can get some insights from you. Yeah, yeah. Well, and we should uh, we should introduce our third guest. Yes. Uh, Julia Snuher is a associate professor of strategy and entrepreneurship, correct? Yes. Uh, at Toulouse Business School in the south of France, and she is in town. She already gave a lecture at CU earlier today, uh, and we were like, well, that's not nearly enough work. So let's uh, <laughs> let's, let's take you out to a distillery to sample CBD chocolate. And that was uh, a good value proposition. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, we figured that that's never a bad, uh, a uniquely bolder experience in, in many ways. Very much so. Uh, being here on Creative Distillation. So let's sample some products. That's what we usually do on this part of the show. And maybe you guys can talk to us a little bit about what we're going to taste. And 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 uh, I'm, I'm really curious to learn more too, Michael. You, you said that your, your your company is a 5013C. Well, yeah. So so our main, um, the main part of our business uh, originally was trying to find a way to bring uh, products from our valley to market, but mm -hmm. at the same time actually teaching the people in the community to actually become a business so that they could bring them to a port of destination, that ca therefore capturing the full amount of, of, of the value of the asset mm -hmm. in country rather than the linear process, the linear system of supply chain, you know, where generally farmers are paid the least and, and most of the money then goes up the grain loader, so to speak. So so when we when we started with that, our our intention was to try and find a funding model mm -hmm. uh, through charitable organizations. Right. But of course our products are commodity. Right. So we had to just realise and so that was one of the first main pivots. So then I realized that I actually had to build a chocolate company uh -huh. in order to process potentially 20, 30, maybe 40 tons, which is the amount of chocolate that comes out of our valley, mm -hmm. and at the same time facilitate that export model. Mm -hmm. So that's how we went about, and that was our first main change. But we've raised uh, small amounts of money through our 501c3. Like originally, we, we raised some money from, uh, I think, uh, the Lush Group through one of their smaller grants, which mm -hmm. built... 25 to 30 fermentation chambers. So that was something that kicked us off originally. So there is money in the system, but unfortunately it's bound up in, in government contracts, mostly in our, our area and, in, and the rest of it, of course, is in the actual commodity. So having a fully integrated um, system from, from the farm, from the farmers, right, right through to the consumers made most sense. So that's why now we produce this. There's four types of chocolate here. There's a 65% which is a lighter chocolate, a 72%. They're all two ingredient. And then there's uh, two, this is a matcha flavored white chocolate, oh. and this is a raspberry flavored. And these have coconut milk cream in it. Wow. So, so no dairy in these. No, we're a fully uh, plant-based company. We, we've kept it that way. And we have to put a warning on, on all of our products that we're, uh, we process tree nuts. But mm -hmm. it's coincidental that a coconut, which is not a tree or a nut, <laughs> uh, um, is considered uh, by the USDA to be a tree nut. Yeah. So we, we take that with great pride. Fantastic. <laughs> well, I, I actually take with great pride the social mission that you're doing yeah. and trying to provide this value to farmers, which has normally been taken over by the larger mm -hmm. processors and people down or up the uh, the food chain, how many individual farms are you working with in Peru? So there's 65 in our valley. We're a very small valley that leads out of the Andes into the Amazonian plateau. So at the top of the valley is about 1,000 meters or 3,000 feet, and where we are is under 1,000 feet. So it wow. drops quite precipitously, and yeah. then it becomes 
shortly after the, that area becomes the Amazon. So in our little part of the valley, there's about 200 farmers. There's currently 60 in our co-op. The more value we can bring to the product, the commodity from that, the more farmers we can append to our cooperative. So we use a three-tiered system. Uh, generally, it's $2 a kilo is the commodity price of cacao. We pay the farmer $2 a kilo based, based upon their wet rate of the dried product. Yep. We pay them roughly $2 a kilo. We then also pay our cooperative $2 a kilo for the processing. And then we have another $2 portion, which we keep in country. So if I have to use processors to get it to port, that is deducted from that part of the model. And if I get them to actually facilitate bringing it to port, they keep the whole lot. Wow. So basically I created an incentive to get them through uh, and onto the taxation system because that's the scariest part for right. certainly small freehold farmers. Mm -hmm. And these are all mine people. So, you know, they're talking about farmers of five or 10 uh, acres. That's fascinating. Uh, and how do you maintain quality? So that's the, the most important part is when you can actually pay someone for a job, meaning you actually employ them to do a process, you can put dictates on what you expect of them mm -hmm. when you're generally just saying, bring everyone together and do all this work and in the future there might be some incentive that right. I could offer you. Generally, that's where you get very <laughs> yeah, interesting quality. So we've developed an application which has four different layers, but the most important layer is that what happens in the cooperative. So we have daily temperature testing, we have pH testing, we have uh, wow. a cut yeah. tests that we do all the time on all different batches. But our transparency goes from nine 20-litre containers through to 63 kilos of cacao in a sack, and that's our traceability. So we can actually see where our chocolate comes from, how it gets to market, and we just use simple database collection tools. And well, we better taste this real yeah, quick. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, got, I got as many Michael questions all day, but I'm gonna sit here and stare at the chocolate and like till we eat it. So any particular order you would suggest so for this is So uh, the 65 is definitely more um, more accessible. Um, the 72 is, is darker and it's, mm -hmm. it's fruitier. Sure. And the two white ones, so, well, that's raspberry and that's matcha. So I'd say start here and, and find your way around or, okay. or start there and come around to this one. I, so. I can do that. That's okay, Jeff, <laughs> go for yeah, it. Yeah, ah, no. It's Homer Simpson. Yeah, ladies. Uh, uh, no, I, I, will, I will do this. Uh, there we go. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. She came all I the way from France to try this. I didn't know that came with perks from chocolate for yeah. this meeting, so I, I now, will enjoy myself. We're kind of making an assumption here as we talk about this that, that our listeners know what the heck CBD is and why we would want to eat it. Uh, maybe maybe you could explain a little bit about that, Michael, because so, I mean, uh, in Boulder, we just take it for granted. But Sure, but uh, CBD um, cannabidiol uh, is, is part of the endocannabinoid system. And the reason why particularly I put that into chocolate is because of the amazing uh, similarities between chocolate and the chemicals in chocolate. There's up to 400 different separate chemical agents in chocolate depending on fermentation there's anandamide there's you know uh which is what they call the bliss molecule which mm -hmm. is where they actually found i believe the endocannabinoid system originally from so we find that the synergies between cacao and cbd are just so perfect as a story mm -hmm. and then the taste combination is is again something quite unique it is very very good oh my gosh yeah um, and actually, I think it's really cool, the parallels about the two businesses that you have with both distilling and creating this chocolate product. And listeners should also know, there are no federal bans on CBD through the U.S., are there? So again, um, in the area of, uh, of CBD as an edible, mm -hmm. there's still a lot to go. But uh, the, the CBD itself, um, we meet all the requirements of law when it comes to less than 0.3% as a, a mm. concentration. So, so as a threshold, you... Yeah. Okay, I understand. So you'd have to eat probably a kilo of chocolate before you'd even get a, a buzz from a smoking a, a, you know, a, a right. joint of some description. Right. So. right, and that's not the intent. The intent is there, there's so, there are a lot of really uh, supposedly physical benefits from CBD to a human being, yeah. inflammation, those types of things. Um, correct? Yeah. Well, all the way that the, uh, um, and again, when they talk about CBD, they talk about terpenes that come from plants, which are, mm -hmm. you know, flavoring and, and, and taste and smell agents um, that actually append to the endocannabinoid system through um, joining with uh, CBD and mm -hmm. um, CBG and other you know, cannabinoids. So because of that, we just think that, like I say, the synergistic properties of the uh, free, you know, when I said anandamide, there's also reuptake inhibitors as well, which in enhance the ability 
for for the anandamide to actually work in the brain, which is why people feel good when they eat chocolate. So right. then adding all the <laughs> potential analgesic properties of the right. CBD, it's right. just a right. fait accompli. Yeah. I think I need a dictionary to understand. What <laughs> no, it tastes A common thing in this industry is called the entourage effect. Okay. So it's just that the 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 concept that you know this individual compound will do something to interact with your endocannabinoid system or other parts of your body to do something but when you start adding all the other things that are present mm. they can they can enhance the things you're going after right just like whiskey would enhance the tasting of chocolate as you gentlemen have found in the partnerships you've engaged in right like uh, you were talking about a valentine's day uh, event that you've done yeah I believe it was Michael that came to me. I was a chocolate neophyte, and he really taught me to appreciate chocolate. And uh, we had an event in which we paired uh, cocktails with chocolates, and he had uh, a very interesting array of uh, very unique uh, specialty one-off chocolates that he'd made for the event. And uh, coming up with the cocktails was... Well, I don't know if you want to call it work, but no. But, but there was definitely a couple of afternoons where we got to sit around here and sample cocktails, and then I went back to work very, wow. very warm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Warm and motivated. Mm. Absolutely. Well, this is delicious. It I, is delicious. I mean, holy cow! And, and where can where can people find this chocolate? Where can they buy it? So our milkshake products. Um, uh, Predominantly a spa product. It's mm -hmm. uh, definitely aimed at uh, the relaxation market. There's uh, in the spa industry a lot of CBD massage going mm -hmm. on because right. again of the the absorption properties of, yeah. of that. So so uh, it's also definitely our, our normal chocolate here around Boulder, mm -hmm. liquor stores and like Petty Johns and and okay. you know coffee shops all over. And could our listeners find you online to find yes, out where they uh, can find this? chocolate.com. Could you spell that, please? Because I'm a little bit un <laughs> uh, unsure of the spelling. Moksha is M-O-K-S-H-A and then chocolate. Perfect. Oh, yeah. Delicious. Probably yeah. didn't have very, very many problems getting the website. <laughs> <laughs> so being in France, can I buy it from France? You can. It's uh, Well, again, uh, we can ship our chocolate anywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, we can currently do that. So... Fingers crossed. Have, have you done some international business? Um, yeah. So the thing about uh, at the moment, uh, I think the UK is very crazy for CBD at the moment too. So hmm. we're in talks with a number of people that want to operate in Canada or uh, yeah, in the no. UK. We're just not at that scale yet. I was living right. in the UK two years ago. I actually saw that happen over time. Hmm. I, was, I was living in some smaller towns and, and you just saw more and more of the pharmacy windows and uh, the chemist having CBD products predominantly featured. Uh, it really just took off. It's kind of amazing to see. And certainly here in Boulder, it's a big industry. Well, uh, so uh, should we taste any of JNL's products, or do you think we can we'll, do that we'll, ahead? We'll, we'll end up on the floor if we do that? Uh, well, so. let's well, not right. go through them all, but <laughs> <laughs> or, or we could just talk about it too. That's fine sure. as well. Well, I do have some uh, available. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, yeah. sure. You know, um, like well, we were talking a little bit about um, what sets us apart. You know, our yeah. authenticity and for me, uh, my background as a physicist, I didn't plan on being a distiller. So, right. you know, I came out here to go to grad school in 96 and mm -hmm. didn't start the distillery until 2011. Wow. So um, for me, uh, what I do differently than others is uh, I bring a lot of science into that. I mm -hmm. had to build all my own equipment uh, because what you, what I wanted to do, you couldn't, you know, couldn't just buy out of a catalog. Hmm. You know, it all falls to our, the ethos of the company, which is that the craft of distillation is an art and a science. Mm -hmm. And at the intersection of the two is the true mastery of the craft. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, that's a lot of marketing mumbo jumbo once the big boys get a hold of it and whatever, if it doesn't mean anything. Right. But for what it means for us is our products are very unique. Um, and what it means for the vodka is my vodka doesn't have the bite that other vodkas have. Okay. That's technically challenging. It requires an enormous amount of energy in the distillation. Sure, sure. And that's something the big boys won't do because of cost. And then the small guys can't do it because they also don't have the equipment that right. I have. So why don't we just taste the vodka? Sure, right. sure. Perfect. There. And I actually think that your authenticity is resonating because I see a bottle of vodka <laughs> in the corner hanging with metals. Yeah. So, so some yeah. somebody um, is really um, validating your process and your your vision. Yeah, you know, um, I've got mixed feelings about competitions, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, it's really hard to evaluate spirits when you got to taste a hundred of them in a day. Sure mm -hmm. is. But um, you know, you, you, everybody needs their medals for their marketing. That's right. Not so right. medals are better for that. That's right. Seth, do you have like, um, we're here in your tasting room, 
Is this open to the public like all the time? Like can people just come uh, in here and get a drink or is know, it mostly your sales through retail? Uh, most of the sales are retail. In Boulder, uh, tasting rooms are largely a vanity project. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm doing some renovations here and it's a beautiful uh, probably bar bar just for a couple at. months. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But yeah, we're still working on things. It's beautiful. And what, what about uh, as a venue? Are you available if someone wanted to rent this out Thank for parties? You. Thank uh, you so much. Something like that? Currently, I can't do that for that purpose, but we do a number of events for nonprofits. Awesome. So the way the permitting is now, I can't charge retail sales, so I can um, I can give away all the alcohol I want, but I just can't take money for it. So oh, we've okay. got events coming up. You know, we're, we're actually putting something together for an event uh, that's not going to be at this venue, uh, which is the Chocolate Lovers Fling, and that's a benefit for the Boulder Safe House. Oh, that's great. And then I'm doing another thing with Habitat for Humanity and... And you know that's awesome. Yeah. And when are those events coming up? Uh, next month. Next month. Okay, so yeah. hopefully we'll get this out by then. Uh, yeah. And get well, know, promote that. Yeah. If not, you know, there'll be more events in the future. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. So, so I'm I'm kind of a beer nerd and mm-hmm. registered beer judge. So I always just whenever we taste anything, I think of it like beer. But I think it's largely the same process. You know, like, I always yeah. smell stuff first. I don't get any like hot, like heated alcoholy. Sure. Kind of stuff off of this, like you were saying. It's, it seems right. Not to have when that people bite. are thinking vodka, you right. know, the the alcohol itself is a very mild component, and it's all the other stuff that you taste. Right. Because the stuff that gives vodka its bites detectable on your palate at parts per million levels, so it's wow. really hard to get rid of. So um, yeah, the big boys won't do it because of energy, and the small guys don't have the equipment. But mine uh, is also made from cane molasses. Hmm. So uh, that's very unique. Generally, you use what's local and cheap. And in America, that's corn. Mm-hmm. And corn, you need to add a lot of um, additional nutrients to get it to ferment sure. appropriately. Uh, but with cane molasses, it's a superfood for yeast. So it keeps the yeast really happy. Right, right. And it's the yeast that produce the compounds that give vodka its bite. So, you know, having a very rigorous distillation and my still's a monster. Um, right. But... Uh, you know, and also having a clean ferment is really what sets it apart. Yeah. Well, I, so I have thoroughly to, cut your tongue. Don't be I have shy to about it. In all honesty, and I am a semi-professional drinker, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and normally not beer, but with uh, spirits, whiskey, vodka, so, bourbon. So Brad's very happy. This, um, week this might be one of the best vodkas I've ever tasted in my life. This is really. I think it's really incredible. I've never had anything like this before. Well, when you get rid of the bite, you can appreciate the underlying character yeah. of what. Yeah. There are layers, there. Seth, and it's very slight. But you know, the cane gives it a little soft sweetness or floral. Mm-hmm. sweetness mm-hmm. right we're getting a thumbs up over here mm-hmm. yeah right. two thumbs up <laughs> yes even for me yes, yes. i'm just... not a vodka fan at all i come from ukraine where people yeah. drink a oh. lot of vodka but uh, right. i always was reluctant but this one is uh, very very nice because i guess it doesn't have the bite so that's yeah. the that's makes the it more accessible i guess to people who don't really well, drink vodka yeah well the reason that uh, the bites detectable on your palate at such low levels is because those are poisons to us and we've evolved to be sensitive to it. Hmm. You know, I'd like to call it a hangover-free vodka. Mm-hmm. Right. And sometimes I do, but I always uh, end that with... <laughs> Depends uh, on what this, you mix it with, right? This is not a legal statement. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Definitely get proved wrong. All right, right. <laughs> what about drinking vodka today, Seth, at room temperature versus kind of I keep my bottles of vodka in a freezer? Is there a difference? Am I doing it wrong? Is it just a wives' tale? Or how would you say the you best know, way? You um, know... A couple reasons to cool things. Uh, there's two main. Uh, the main one being that it does deaden the the aroma. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the taste, but most of taste is aroma. Okay. So you put it in your mouth cold, uh, you don't get the aroma, so you don't identify those bite characteristics. Okay. So this in the freezer would basically be tasting like water. Interesting. Uh, but, you know, that also deadens the other things that you might want to taste. It also affects the viscosity. Mm-hmm. And um, not so much with vodka, but with gin, a lot of people put the gin in the freezer right. to, to alter the viscosity, which I'm not sure how much I really believe that because, you know, once you put it in a glass with ice and whatever, I mean, the temperature is the temperature, right. <laughs> right, right. you know, either works so, or it doesn't, right? <laughs> right, right yeah, yeah. But I mean, unless you're just pulling it, swigging it right out of the bottle, I don't know if the viscosity thing is and so holds much water. If people want to find this on the shelf, it looks like the label says snow on it. Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, we'll get that up on the video. But and sure. then you you make other other liquors as well, right? Yeah, I make a, a gin, okay. uh, and then an or a, and then an herb that's also called snow gin. Okay, and then a, and then a European style herb liqueur called fire. Wow, 
the Europeans are kind of all over the place uh, when it comes to making liqueurs. Like right. American liqueurs tend to be a single flavor note, where the mm-hmm. Europeans, some of them can have 100 components. Wow. Uh, this does not have that, but it's got a bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the dominant flavors in that would be vanilla, clove, and cinnamon. Mm. Uh, we could taste that as well. Well, if we must. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's I go ahead and do that. Yeah. So yeah. If you, if you feel free to just... Uh, Our producer will start uh, signaling us if we keep the tasting going. Uh, for too oh, long. But, uh, but that's no, right. Our, no, 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 so no, for, so for people listening or watching, this is worth a stop in Boulder. This is really... The product so far yeah. is incredible, both in the chocolate and in the, oh, thank you. Uh, the spirit. So... So I'm really just thrilled to be here, and, and thanks for both of you guys. Yes, to, thank you for joining us. And really interesting That's business models too. Like, I mean, you know, it, it's um, you know, we didn't tell these guys we were going to talk about business models, and I think the fact that that we didn't, um, yet they both have described, in my mind at least, very unique aspects of their business model that came from mm-hmm. their own founder identity, their background, what they mm-hmm. cared about, what they were interested in. I I find that coming through in the products, and, and as we were talking about earlier, the authenticity of the products uh this is not like you know this is not like drinking absolute or some other like, oh, no. big brand you know high quality quote unquote vodka uh it, it, it's a different product it's a different product but it, it goes down great and like i said as a person that really loves spirits uh, oh wow congratulations i thought it was just Thanks. awesome you guys well, this one smells I, fantastic i'd like to plug yes. the industry in general right. um craft distilling is definitely exploding at this point and in colorado there's a lot of other people doing a lot of unique things. And one thing that, uh, that Colorado has is a distiller's guild, mm. and they put out a map which has all the uh, all of the 61 distilleries on it. And you can go around and get stamps, and if you get 10 stamps, you get a free T-shirt. If you get all the stamps, you get two free bottles, and you're in drawings for 50 you free bottles. You haven't seen my bottom drawer. So, uh, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's 60, really like, 61. if you want to put in a lot of hard work, if you want to call it that, yeah, you yeah. can visit all the <laughs> distilleries really in Colorado. Cool. And I've had people come through the distilleries the that have seen more of them than I have. Is it a pretty tight organization? Are they helpful in outreach for you and uh, resources uh, and those types know, of things? You know, the brewers organization for beer brewing is much stronger and sure. better lobbyists. Uh, but we're small and growing, mm-hmm. and uh, we tend to help people out. And even the brewing industry does too. Yeah. Um, you know, view it as like, all boats rise. So mm-hmm. more of a collaboration, together. right? Or collaborative. To a certain extent, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember Avery had a uh, a beer a few years ago called uh, Collaboration, not Litigation, <laughs> uh, because another company was making a similar style beer. I think it even had the same name. That's right. And they found out about each other, and instead of what we would normally expect an onslaught of lawsuits, like, hey, let's brew one together and call it this. And uh, I thought that epitomized at least, you know, not always, but but definitely I've seen in the craft brewing and other craft uh, markets here in in, Bol- in Colorado and in Boulder specifically, you know. People tend to try to collaborate, and you know, as you said, a rising tide lifts all ships. That's right. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing about about the beer industry. You know, you'll see a guest brewer right. going to a brewery. The chocolate industry, not so much. Yeah. People in the chocolate industry think they're very much they hold these secrets. Okay, you know, really? so they yes, all they've come That's from very specific backgrounds, and they hold a very unique set of skills. And if anyone was to learn them, they would know the secret. And so they oh. they're very yeah. There's lots of people out there still that do teach. But it's not quite as much as, as, you know, I think the craft beer industry, I don't know necessarily about distilleries, but, but I just think that's a very big distinction between my world and Seth's. Well, you give keep people a couple shots and they'll start talking yeah. about it. Yeah, right? <laughs> let's do that. The alcohol uh, does help. Uh, it does. Uh, holy sure, cow, this, sure. uh, this fire, F-Y-R, yeah. this is amazing. Like, I, I've never tasted anything like this. And it's nothing like the festival, right? No, no. <laughs> it's it's already I, inherently more I'm, successful. I'm, that's right. I'm glad I didn't pay any money to be some sort of sponsor. Oh, right. my, God. oh, no. oh my God! Oh gosh! Like, uh, that would have been awful. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for the yeah. amazing samples, and thank you for sharing with us about your products and your companies. We've really enjoyed talking to you. It's and Seth, great. where could where could our sampling. listeners and, and viewers find you online? Uh, JLDistilling.com. Awesome. And yeah, we're in pretty much a lot of liquor stores around the state. Yeah. Great. Well, congratulations to both of you, and thank you for stopping in and sharing your stories. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you, thank you yep. so much. Yeah. Cool. Thank Great. You.
Well, that was great. Uh, it was really interesting. You know, we didn't tell either of those guys that we were going to talk about business models today. <laughs> Yet, uh, I found both business models to be really interesting and actually linked to the uh, the topic of the paper we're going to talk about today, which I, I was not aware of because it is in press. It'll be coming out in March, but you can access it at the Academy of Management Journal website. Uh, it's really nice that in academia, when papers are in press, they're actually more accessible than they are when they're published. Yes. Uh, it's pretty much open access right now. Uh, but the paper we're going to talk about is the genesis and metamorphosis of novelty imprints, how business model innovation emerges in young ventures. And the lead author of the paper uh, is Julia Sneher of the Toulouse Business School and uh, University of Toulouse in France, uh, along with her co-author, uh, Christophe Zalt at IESE Business School in Barcelona. Uh, and we are fortunate enough to have Yulia with us, uh, as we introduced earlier. Thank you for joining us. You're yeah, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to uh, Boulder to give a talk, but also to meet uh, very interesting entrepreneurs and to see this cluster of uh, distilleries and uh, chocolate makers uh, that I'm founding, finding fascinating. Uh, so thank you also to make me discover other things that I haven't any idea about. <laughs> well, that's what we always try to do on uh, Creative Distillation. We're trying to, to go out and find the, the more interesting businesses around town. And then it uh, gives us a good setting to try to talk about uh, academic insights. And, 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 you know, I'm really glad to have a guest here because I have, uh, I've been trying to uh, distill things down for Brad. I think I'm getting better <laughs> as, as I go. And Brad is uh, uh, certainly more than capable of understanding any of the research uh, I talked to him. But th the question always comes back to, you know, how do we tell entrepreneurs uh, or more broadly, entrepreneurs, investors, and a non-academic audience, like what's interesting in this paper. And I think I found it in this paper. Like to me, this paper uh, spoke loud and clear, much more so than much of my own work. Like, you know, in fact, I plan to use it in class uh, this coming Monday, but but it's your paper, Julia. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how it came about, what you were trying to do, and then how you think it's uh, useful for entrepreneurs or others. Yeah, so this is a paper that comes from uh, from my dissertation uh, work where I followed several companies and uh, I was originally interested to understand why some companies launch innovative business models. And uh, I looked through many local companies and then chose some that I found more innovative and others that were less innovative. And uh, mm -hmm. the end result of this uh, that I didn't think that would happen at the time was me following these companies for many years, uh, which ended up being nine or 10 years. Uh, nine, 10 years uh, following these companies. Uh, over time, yeah. And uh, that uh, resulted in, in this paper, uh, trying to look at the, at the process and over time realizing the strong role of the founder imprinting mm. the novelty right. part on the innovative companies, which was uh, in the research talk, this is, was a bit counterintuitive, uh, at least for for me, where imprinting usually is associated with a lack of change. So mm, you, right, imprint, right. you imprint something, it's a stamp, you stamp it on uh, a company or you stamp it on a duck in uh, biological <laughs> right, terms right, right, or right, right. you stamp it on a, let's say a PhD student that works with an advisor <laughs> and is imprinted strongly sure. by what the advisor says. Sure, we see that. Uh, and then the counterintuitive part here was that the innovative companies, well, they kept innovating. Wow. Uh, and so over these several years that I followed them, well, they uh, kept introducing new things. So uh, mm -hmm. for me, that was frustrating in a, in a sense because I thought that's what their business model was. And then a couple of Months later, I would come back and they would tell me, well, we have changed it. Now it's something else. And mm -hmm. uh, I was a little bit worried in the beginning, thinking, well, what does this do to all of my research setup? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I've invested five years in uh, following these people, and now they're changing what they're doing. Yeah, oh, but no. that, yeah, then the, the insight came uh, after years of thinking of figuring out, okay, where do I go with this? That yeah. actually the, the imprinting part was imprinting the novelty uh, by the, the founder giving the company, the employees, uh, an incentive to keep changing, to keep innovating. Uh, right. And that was uh, uh, the insight that made this paper work in a sense or that uh, yeah. that came to me later, that came to me after finishing my, my PhD. Uh, mm. uh, and again, so this is more academic side. I'm not sure I'm talking to the right. practical no, entrepreneurship no, 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 side. So, so it's very, very interesting to me. Um, and I think business model and discussion of business models is incredibly relevant to entrepreneurs. And I am here though to, to mm. represent how would this actually help someone that's starting a new business. And through our previous discussion with these two really cool entrepreneurs, um, you heard one of them say that they loved the business and got into the business mm -hmm. and then decided they, they didn't have a business model in mind. And then as the business evolved, the model evolved. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's actually 
very common with young entrepreneurs and new companies and uh, innovative companies. So, kind of how how do you how do you reconcile those two things, uh, Yula? Uh, well, the the changing the business model in the entrepreneurial education, there's a lot of push today towards this this question of pivoting and uh, experimenting and uh, quickly changing, uh, and that's. Part of what my paper is about, that the business model is not fixed, but has to be updated. But again, I'm not sure I'm trying to say that you should change your business model all the time either, because there, there are moments when it's needed and moments when maybe it doesn't make sense to change too much either. So the, from, from my research, I mainly look at the novelty aspect, uh, compared to what happens in the industry mm-hmm. and the, the interesting, the interesting part about the the business model innovation from these from these founders was that they not only they uh, thought about their own industry, how it functions, who are the players, how do I fit with these different players, uh, but also they try to figure out what happens outside my industry, and getting ideas from outside the industry helped them to come up with a business model that was new enough to get enough bargaining power with other players to position the company well enough. Let me just stop you there for one second because now I'm going to totally agree with you. Understanding your industry... This is a first. Yeah, it doesn't happen that often. Never happens to me. Congratulations, Julia. But understanding how your industry functions is of vital importance to a new entrepreneur and Mm. also having this open-mindedness to what's going on in the industry I think are really, really important factors which you identified in your paper and then also the Mm -hmm. other thing talking before we were sitting down here is looking at other industries as well Uh, Mm -hmm. can you speak to that a little bit Uh, yeah sure I mean we talked with with Seth here and he mentioned his question about uh, working with distributors and how he could should interact with them and Mm -hmm. I think part part of the story here is uh, for entrepreneurs it's maybe not so obvious to figure out what is the best position uh, in the industry and how to find the twist that will help them to uh, to make money in the in a difficult spot where you're a new player and you don't have much with you uh, so this first of all understanding the industry is probably the first part but Agreed. second getting inspiration from somewhere else that will give you some ideas to do things slightly differently or even in big ways different from the other players might be might be helpful so learning from beer industry, for example, or learning from uh, somewhere even further away for for that might be might be interesting approach to to take to this problem. Let's say of uh, how what next steps to take. Right, and that creativity could actually provide a long term sustainable competitive advantage, wouldn't you say? Uh, yeah, 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 I would definitely agree on uh, on that. That, uh, but again, it's innovation not necessarily only from the product side. So here we have talked a lot about product innovation. So mm-hmm. introducing uh, CBD-based chocolate, and this is uh, this is definitely uh, innovative. But then the question about how do I distribute it and uh, how do I organize my business around it is also relevant. And uh, right, my right. point would Agreed. would be that innovation can come from both products, but also from the business model side. Right, mm-hmm. and this is something we struggle with a lot in teaching entrepreneurship. So you know the classic. Uh, gosh, when I started doing this, like you basically tell people who don't have a patent, well, you don't have a defensible competitive advantage. Sorry. Right. And then, then the the close uh, the close second place would be, like, oh, well, you just get to scale really fast, and then you have a dominant brand, and you get acquired. Yeah. But I think you know, okay, those are both great if you have them, but kind of very difficult things to do. I think what I like about this research is it points at the idea that, like, you know, and this paper, to be clear, uh, feel free to straighten me out at any point. It's not saying, hey, business model innovation is the thing you should do all the time. But there are prior studies that suggest now. Now, business model innovation, I say that's been studied for what, maybe ten years. So, mm-hmm. in, in terms of academia, it's a baby. But you know, there is, and I think we all just kind of intuitively know that a business model innovation can lead to competitive advantage in many situations. Not always, but to me, it's something we can teach. Right? Yeah. It's something we can tell students and tell burgeoning entrepreneurs. Hey, thinking about how business mm-hmm. models from outside your industry can be applied in your industry would allow you to differentiate and perhaps reduce your overall cost or maybe mm-hmm. increase the the price you're willing you're able to charge or mm-hmm. differentiate your product in a crowded market all or those things. customer connections so many so many different things and I also look at and Yulia and I talked about this earlier about new startups are actually they're an idea searching for a business model mm-hmm. so early on <laughs> sure. you mean you may not mm-hmm. even have a clue on how you're going to monetize whatever the heck you're 
you're doing. And so, but somewhere you have to, right? And so how does that kind of fit into your research in the evolution of a business, coming up with an idea, and then doing this research, understanding the landscape, both within your industry and maybe looking at novel um, ideas outside of your industry, how would you say that that kind of process flows? Yeah, there's definitely learning in the process. So in all of my cases, I saw the entrepreneurs or the founders learn. Uh, but there was also a part that was interesting to me was the selection of other employees that were like-minded right. than the founder. So there were several of the early employees that, I mean, selection by the founder, selection by the employees that uh, joined the project that, uh, well, had a strong influence from the founder on how to function and where to bring this company. And so this, uh, let's say, collective learning, in a sense, uh, led to some companies being much more innovative over time, not only because the founder was willing to do that, but also because the employees took the founder as a role model to try to behave in the similar way with their teams. So setting of the culture uh, early on. Yeah, so in a sense, that's where we come back to this imprinting idea. So there was that innovation is not a one-person game or mm -hmm. in, uh, in a company, uh, that's, that's something that has to be nurtured and often the, the founder can be a role model for the team to follow up or not in those footsteps. So in, uh, some, in my innovative cases, that's, that's what happened. And in cases that were not innovative, again, it's coming back to uh, Jeff's point, not every company will innovate the business model and that's, that's fine. And in the, in the cases that were less innovative, well, the employees were more focused, for instance, on being as efficient as possible. And that also gave an advantage to the company in the, in the space where they were, but with a different focus, let's say. Uh, and that's where the imprinting was important from the founder and selecting these early employees uh, to influence where the company goes. Mm -hmm. And part of your research also touches on strength of personality. Well, I'm not sure it's uh, strength of personality, but uh, it's uh, more in terms of uh cognition of how thing, how the founder does things that is reflected or especially in these early experiences. So early on when the first employees join, they seem to often take part of the behaviors of the founders in their own DNA, let's say. Okay. Uh, so I'm not sure it's the personality. It's more in terms of, uh, uh, well, the founder tries to... A presence? Even bigger than that, right? Well, it's more cognitive. So it's a cognitive in terms of thinking outside the industry and the founder brings examples outside the industry during the meetings and well, then the employees will also start to get those, those kind of behaviors. So I wouldn't say that's his personality. It's more the, the type of kind of thinking. So is that, it licensed uh, to fail in a sense that try these things is it, or am i am i overthinking this you're overthinking this. okay good good <laughs> yeah. oh, thanks well, to, that's why we do this at a bar no no right? it's absolutely no but i mean i think i think what you're driving at like um is this so so if you go back in the I'm, okay I'm, I'm gonna try not to, to get too academic you can just kick me if i do but okay. like if you go back to the prior literature on like imprinting the basic idea is oh look the founder did some things and they were this really powerful personality, and then that holds through the organization, and it carries through even after the founder is gone. Uh, these are these are kind of early theories, and what I think is 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 really interesting about what Yulia and, and Christoph have found here is that it's not that simple. It's mm. the founder does have that impact, but also when they recruit people mm. who think similarly to them when they are a more active role model and mentor to those first hires early on, that's how this happens. And they refer to that as cognitive imprinting versus structural imprinting. I, I love that you just brought up that term mentorship, though. Mm. And I think that that actually is very It's a big relatable. mechanism in the paper. Yeah, and it's a mm. big mechanism in real life, too. Right. So I yeah, think that but that's, that's why I didn't agree with your personality yeah. side, because I don't, I don't think it's really about the personality. It's right. more about the behaviors and the right. thinking yeah. that it's not that I will have the same personality as the founder does. That will never happen. But uh, you can get influenced by the type of behavior the company has. So if every two weeks we have a meeting where we think about how more innovative we might be, right. well, that will reflect on how the employees also behave. Right, uh, and it's a great practice. So that's a great practical practice as well. So I love it that you well, said Well, and that. it highlights like some of the things you found about founders 
getting integrated into the way a company operates. So, so the, the, there's, there's basically three mechanisms here I love in this paper because I'm like, hey, it's always three, right? And for students, they love it when there's three things, right? So we talked about the first one, uh, engaging in industry-spanning search versus, uh, versus industry-focused search, right? Mm. And so a lot of times our students get so focused on, let's say, the beer industry, right? I know everything about the beer industry. I'm like, that's great. So does every other brewer in town and in the mm. country, right? That's, right. That's still in business. So let's start thinking about totally different industries that students may mm. be aware of that, that, I mean, you know, I'm old, so I can say this, that us older folks may not be aware of. Like, oh, hey, I can leverage TikTok to get uh, my beer out there through viral uh, videos uh, featuring a local celebrity. I mean, that's not going to occur to me, right? It's a very different way of thinking about it. Um, the other aspect, though, I want to talk about the, the complex system thinking style versus internal efficiency thinking style. I think that really relates. Okay, wait a second. Okay, hold on. No, no, I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. I promise. I'm going to still it down. Okay. I haven't had too much CBD yet. I'm okay, good. Like, I, I, I had to eat a lot more than that. Uh, no, but, but if we were having meetings, right, and our meetings were focused on, let's think about let's think about how what we're doing relates to other industries here that we know of or other businesses that we might partner with, uh, thinking about partnerships. That's a really different meeting mm -hmm. than, hey, you guys, uh, you were less efficient last week and our costs are going up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, yes. Yeah. I mean, and that's kind of intuitive, but this paper brings it out. I've never seen that before of like how we think about what we're doing as entrepreneurs. Well, I think it comes also from the following these companies and uh, being present there, looking at how the right. meetings really work in the companies. That's something that shocked me or like that I was surprised seeing the differences in terms of what kind of meetings the two different types of companies had and right. uh, where uh, efficiency was much bigger issue or the uh, for the the managers and the founder in uh, in one set and uh, it's not that the other types of companies didn't pay attention to efficiency, sure, but uh, the the thinking was different. So the the cognition again was uh, was focused much more on figuring out really how things work in the industry and where the the leverage could be found with different participants and uh, right. who are the partners, who are the competitors, and should we maybe even shift in who our partners and competitors are? So this was one of yes. the companies that was. Uh, uh, in the mobile payment, uh, and uh, originally they thought they were developing a platform for uh, merchants and uh, customers, but then they realized maybe we're developing a, a platform that works for banks, uh, <laughs> and that was a very different way to think about what their business was, and right. the meetings were more about reframing what actually are we mm. doing, who are our customers, rather than thinking about what is the the most efficient way to be uh, a platform for paying merchants? Right, uh, right, right, right. So this uh, this shift of realizing that we can be many different things, I think, is mm -hmm, uh, is mm -hmm. important for for innovation uh, in general and business model innovation in particular. Absolutely, mm -hmm. I totally agree. The other I aspect. Have you convinced? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah we did. Yeah, we did. Yeah, right. we're, we're, one point, yes. <laughs> we're, 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 hey, two points. And I think that actually ties into a lot of the um, a lot of the shift in the entrepreneurship literature away from traits and mm. into process. And what I mean by that is like if pretty much everything we thought we knew about certain types of people are good entrepreneurs and other types of people aren't, that's sort of all been debunked. I mean, in a sense of I can show I can show extroverts are good entrepreneurs, and then I can also show in another state it doesn't matter at all. Uh, yeah. If I want to be really misogynist, I might say, oh, well, men are better entrepreneurs than women or some nonsense like that. Turns out that's not true, shockingly. Mm -hmm. uh, but even things like, oh, I'm more risk tolerant things, and mm -hmm. people still believe this. Uh, really great entrepreneurs don't think they're risk tolerant. They don't think they're taking on mm -hmm. any risk at all. They don't, right. they don't particularly think in that way. And what I love is getting away from like, you know, oh, well, you got to be this type of person. But rather, these are steps you can take. If you want to have business model innovation, if you think that's important in your industry, then these are some steps you can take. Right, so transferable skills. Exactly, exactly. And that's why I really like about this work in this paper. Thank uh, you, thank you. So originally we had a table of what leads to business model innovation that yeah. had these clear steps, but the end result of the academic work was that this table Yeah, we get rid of all that, right? Like, uh, do, you, do you have, a, the, can you talk to us about your biggest surprise personally through your research? Was there, was there one moment or one component that stood out to you? 
Uh, yeah, I think this this third part where the yeah. I mean, for me, from reading a lot of innovation literature, it was I was expecting that uh, there would be a lot of this participative decision making and uh, innovation will come from uh, yeah co creation, etc. But the end result was usually in these innovative companies that I followed, the founder took the the decision and said, okay, we go in this direction, and uh, I was that was unexpected to me, so I found it very surprising me the uh, where the there was this this yeah creativity but on the other side there was someone who had to take a strong decision uh, upkeep this this novelty in the business model at least so uh, i mean again i'm not talking to all innovation people so right. if you want to develop an innovative product maybe you don't need a strong right. power that uh, founder that says uh, you should do it this way but in these in these com- uh, companies for business model innovation it seemed like a strong decision maker is uh, is needed uh, so this organic decentralized decision making didn't really work well for business model innovation right uh, and that, that can be terrifying for a young entrepreneur because in a sense you have to make a decision you cannot sit on the fence and just say well it could go this way or this way you have to just say this is the way we're going sometimes and uh, that that's that's very scary especially early on for for younger people that are starting businesses yeah, I mean, for me, that was also curious, this, the strength of this imprinting. So the founders, even if they're young, they still do a lot of things that strongly imprint their team and their company and that they might not realize at the, at the time. So uh, the more research I do in entrepreneurship, the less willing I am to start a company because I'm like, oh my God, there's so much that goes on during this, this, this I, I, moment I, of founding. I <laughs> so agree with that. I, I totally disagree I, here, oh, folks. Yeah, okay. I, I need to disagree with that. <laughs> uh, so, it's, yeah. But it's not for everyone. No, it's not. And I think when we try to teach entrepreneurship, I mean, it's almost, I think it's quite irresponsible, actually, to be like a, a cheerleader for entrepreneurship. I mean, like, oh, you guys should all be entrepreneurs and we'll measure success by how many of you launch a business. I mean, I, I'm not actively starting any businesses right now and I don't really want to. And, right. I mean, and, and, you know, it's funny. I started to move my classes and my teaching much more towards a competition where people were allowed you know, they didn't fail the class necessarily, but their venture could absolutely fail in the mm-hmm. class and be, it'd be very clear signals to the point where I have to have tissues for the tears in the office right. uh, about That's this. Right. And they're like, oh my God, you know, I'd never ever want to do this. I'm like, that is actually a wonderful lesson for you to learn. Well, so, but it's not all about starting businesses, even though we're talking about business models here, right? Entrepreneurship to me is just a creative way of thinking, right? Yeah. And now we're ta- talking about a subset of those creative thinkers sure. that now want to launch something. Sure, I think of it more broadly as, uh, you know, in the words of Herb Simon, there's a science of the artificial. I mean, it's oh, how we bring artifacts into this world. Right. Um, and and what what I think uh, this paper does that I, I just love is it is it, it, it takes something that, we really don't understand much about. Everybody's like, business models, business, a lean canvas, and like, oh, yeah. let's talk about your business model. But we don't know anything about where the good ones come from, or the innovative ones, I should say. Because there's no, you know, that's the thing with qualitative research, I think. It, it lets you get at mechanisms that we wouldn't uncover otherwise, mm. but it's not the same as going out and like, hey, we, we, did, a, we did a survey, we studied... 3,000 entrepreneurs and we, we track them on all these survey metrics and we can say these things statistically are likely. It's a different kind of yes. thing. Yes. Uh, in my opinion, mm-hmm. oftentimes much more interesting. Well, it gets at the process of how things happen. But yes. then the how and why. is uh, definitely the problematic side of this. Uh, yeah. So I can say this happened in these three companies and I'm yeah. pretty confident that this could be happening again but then again uh, this is uh, where we uh, put a lot of caveats on the academic research that's right uh, one shoe doesn't fit everyone yeah yeah but again this is a method to get at the really the nitty-picky details of the yeah role modeling or the mentorship or the what kind of meetings do these companies have which is yeah things that we don't really know that much about in entrepreneurship it's uh, for me the fascinating part is the question of uh, of design or how do the entrepreneurs design the -hmm, the business mm -hmm. models so it's uh, about artifacts, but it's also about this agency of uh, entrepreneurs designing Absolutely. really social systems and not mm-hmm. only new products, but also impacting employees, impacting yes. yeah. people they work with uh, or around. So that's, uh, yeah. And for me, looking at those processes is interesting. But right. And it's very interesting to me, actually. And I love the passion that you bring to this <laughs> as well. I can tell that you really believe it and, and love and, and, and really um, embrace what you're doing. Is there a next step from this paper? Do you have your um, eyes set on another piece of research moving forward? 
forward? Well, yes, it's in research. We always have many, many projects. And uh, the more I uh, work in research, more projects I seem to, <laughs> to have around me. Okay. Uh, but, always uh, expanding VC portfolio. There you go. Uh, <laughs> yes. Where things uh, don't fail. They just hang around like, forever. <laughs> but this this question of how business models change and a uh, question of, uh, of pivoting is something that is, uh, yeah, we were talking about this this morning, uh, mm-hmm. is uh, fascinating to me. And I think we don't know that much about the what goes on between the the company started and uh, success that's right <laughs> uh, so yeah and the, on the entrepreneurial side that's that's very much what I what I look at uh, but uh, other things that I do uh, in terms of business models I also often look at industries where there is disruption happening and how the existing companies react to these newcomers mm, that nice. introduce innovation and uh, bring these new business models that sometimes can can have very strong consequences for uh, for industries uh, so this is the other the the dark side of business model innovation if you will mm-hmm. uh, of the the creative destruction uh, that uh, the old gets uh, gets destroyed and has to change as well mm-hmm. and uh, that's also very interesting to what me. What about identifying stakeholders in a business model when you're when you're contemplating a business model thinking more about um, stakeholder and the, the the wide universe of stakeholders mm-hmm. versus shareholder return? Mm-hmm. No that that's another uh, very very interesting part of thinking and uh, I think the the stakeholder theory this is uh, very much under uh, represented in the strategy and entrepreneurship research mm-hmm. as well so this is uh, for me I am also working on another uh, okay. project and <laughs> where uh, we look at platforms so we look at Airbnb or Uber for instance that uh, introduce new business models to an ecosystem to a society and then there are several negative externalities to right. stakeholders uh, for instance in uh, in Barcelona where the well the neighbors they have to deal with the noise and then the apartment prices go up and uh, this this new business model that makes money for the shareholders, well, for the community, it has positive and negative consequences. Right, and the government may step in and uh, there can be some regulation and all those other things that then come follow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, I mean, some of the of the research that uh, Jeff has been doing as well on the social movements and the, uh, how the community can react also negatively to, uh, to new business models. To me, this is an interesting thing that I'm playing around or thinking about from the company perspective, how do you adjust your business model uh, to these negative externalities that it might have on the community? And mm-hmm. that's, uh, to me, not so not so obvious because the, the answer is, yeah, you should be innovative, et cetera. But how do you take into it's account e- it's the easy neighbors? To say, right? or the, yeah. Uh, yeah. Hard to practice. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny. I'm, I'm just getting ready to go help kick off our uh, social impact uh, track of the, the campus-wide uh, entrepreneurship competition. And what they've asked me to talk about is not to talk about triple bottom line or sustainability, but a stakeholder approach. And they're actually trying to judge uh, the social impact track this year according to a stakeholder approach. So it's really interesting to see these this, this concept catching on and and not that stakeholder has already. I mean, it's been around. I mean, for it's a long been time. around for but many years. Academia, but in uh, academia, you know, it's it's you know a handful of papers in the in the mm. business ethics literature, and that's kind of ironic too because it was originally you know Ed Freeman wrote it as a strategy theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's uh, it's interesting, and uh, there have been three papers or four in SMJ or uh, yeah. in uh, in AMJ about this. But uh, I find that there's much more we could do with Absolutely. this theory well, in th- the business model world as I well. I think the so, next yeah. time that you're in town, we're going to focus on stakeholders. How is that? <laughs> um, very good. Thank you very much for coming in today. Hopefully, yeah. uh, you, it was very informative for me. Hopefully, uh, you shed some light on people thank working you. on their current uh, ventures right now. So thank you. Pleasure. And, and to live up oh, to my, my role here as distiller here, I want to make sure. Okay. So Brad, if, if you're starting a venture and you're seeking to have a more innovative business model, yep. uh, you want to engage in industry-spanning search, not just focus on... On your industry, but look more broadly. Yep. You want to engage in a complex system thinking style, meaning you think about multiple elements of the business and their interlinkages rather than just thinking about how to maximize your internal <laughs> efficiency. And uh, you want to have a dog on premises of for course. sure. Uh, that is always the way to yep. do And you want to actually centralize your decision making around the uh, around the founder and around leaders rather than having a, a more uh, broad and decentralized and, and way of making let, decisions. Let me add one takeaway in a practical standpoint that I actually am taking away is that um, a founder is a mentor to yes. their team is extremely mm. important. Yeah. Right. And it can be and positive I, or negative. It can be positive or negative. Hopefully mm. we're talking in the positive way, but mm. I think, I think um, founders need to think more about mentoring teammates um, and, and early hires than just 
yeah, they bring them in for certain roles normally. Yep. But oh. beyond that, there there is one extra step, I think, that will actually give you a much greater chance of success. And I think that that's that mentoring. Component. Oh, yeah, yeah, thanks. And I think that's that's one of my surprises as well, this strong role of a role model of the founder. So the employees really look up to the founder. The founder might want it or not, but they right. will have a role modeling perception from their different early stage employees in particular so the founder has to be careful about the, Very careful. Uh, these yep. early first days uh, mm -hmm. as well as what what continues perfect thank, thank you, you so thank much you. for being here that was we a really pleasure appreciate it. thank you Jeff it was wonderful it was to pleasure. meet you and uh, really enjoyed the paper and hope you enjoy the rest of your visit here in uh, Great. Colorado nice conversation and very good tasting as well so, uh, oh, yeah, I'll thanks. remember that for sure the CBD chocolates and uh, <laughs> the fire liquor that was yeah uh, that, that wow. fire liquor is really impressive <laughs> and I think that we were delicious. successful in bringing to light some um, actual techniques for entrepreneurs today. So that's hey, so, all right. Yes. So, so, uh, great so, note. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thanks all right. a lot. Thank uh, join us next time here on Creative Distillation. And uh, we will next uh, be talking in our next episode to the Dean of the Leeds Business School, uh, Sharon Matusik, about some of her recent research uh, looking at the state of the field of entrepreneurship. So we're really looking forward to that. That should be a lot of fun. And, uh, and we really look forward to hearing from her. So, yeah. All right. Perfect. See you next Thank time. You. Thanks a lot. Thank you.